Welcome to the Manufacturing Executive Podcast, where we explore the strategies and experiences that are driving mid-sized manufacturers forward. Here, you'll discover new insights from passionate manufacturing leaders who have compelling stories to share about their successes and struggles. And you'll learn from B2B sales and marketing experts about how to apply actionable business development strategies inside your business. Let's get into the show. Welcome to another episode of the Manufacturing Executive Podcast. I'm Joe Sullivan, your host and a co-founder of the industrial marketing agency, Gorilla76, where we help B2B manufacturers grow through revenue-focused marketing programs. If you were to interview a variety of successful manufacturing leaders and analyze their approach to leadership, I think you'd find a lot less directing than you would enabling. My guest today draws on his experience, both as a military leader and a manufacturing leader, to break down what he refers to as the five key principles for creating a culture of initiative. We'll talk about what it means to lead with intention, delegate, empower decision-making, maximize collaboration, and create meaningful process documentation. Let me introduce him. Jason Riley currently serves as the COO for Fabrisonic, an additive manufacturing company in Columbus, Ohio, that specializes in ultrasonic additive manufacturing. Jason joined Fabrisonic after serving as the COO for a material science JPL Caltech spinoff company, where he led operations for more than three years and helped to build the company from the ground up. While there, Jason built out a 14,000 square foot end-to-end R&D and manufacturing facility to conduct research and production of amorphous metal gears and other components through injection molding, additive manufacturing, and precision machining. Jason has also served as a Marine Corps infantry officer for more than 20 years, active and reserve, and has extensive experience in planning and operations. Jason, welcome to the show. Yeah, thank you for having me. Beautiful. Well, you're Coming shortly after an episode I just recorded that you might go back and check out about how to bring veterans into the manufacturing workforce and be more veteran friendly. And I was reminded as I went into your bio that you are in the Marine Corps yourself and thank you for your service. Yeah, no, absolutely. Definitely an interesting topic, one that I have a, have a particular interest in. In fact, was talking to a, a recruiter that works for a talent agency and kind of we were going back and forth about the things that veterans do bring to the workforce but also importantly, gaps that they have and things that they need to quickly learn once they get to the civilian sector. Yeah, very interesting. Well, I had a great conversation. The Lieutenant Colonel, I'm probably getting it wrong in terms of her title, but Kathy Gallowitz was the name and she's like a huge advocate for veterans in the workforce. It was a really enlightening conversation for me and learned plenty about what I could be doing better in my, my own organization. So anyway, just thought I'd mention that. So well, Jason, let's let's kick things off here by hearing a little bit from you about your journey to date and what led you to where you are today as COO of Fabrisonic. Yeah, certainly. My background is diverse and my journey is certainly not predictable, right? I consider myself, although I have expertise, I think, in, in select areas, I consider myself more of a generalist or a chameleon, able to adapt to a wide variety of, of situations and organizations. My journey into the startup world and advanced manufacturing, again, probably would not have been predicted, certainly if somebody would have said 20 years ago, 10 years ago, that I would be helping to run two different advanced manufacturing companies back to back, I would have laughed. 
in a lot of ways, it's, it's simply just been about taking opportunities as they arise. I'm a big believer in opportunity creates opportunity. And the more doors you walk through, the more doors will be available. And so I've kind of tried to live that in practice. You know, kind of just going back after college, I started out as an active duty Marine Corps infantry officer. And infantry officers have to be a jack of all trades. You got to learn communications, logistics, obviously your infantry craft, but various other skills and, and jobs just to be functional. While on active duty, deployed to Iraq and Afghanistan, so I have that experience. And then in 2007, left active duty as a young captain, started out, uh, started doing a master's program. And then as I was finishing that program, decided to go back on active duty orders and ended up in California working for one of my previous company commanders. Did that for a few years. And then I started a PhD program in about 2018, spent the better part of seven years studying, researching, writing, continuing to serve in the Marine Corps Reserve, teaching graduate and undergraduate classes, uh, and then had a white, you know, had had been married, but had started to have kids. So in 2018, I completed my PhD, but the academic market at that point is pretty bleak. It really hasn't gotten a lot better. But I took the opportunity to be employee number one and help get off the ground, as you had already mentioned, that material science company in Pasadena, California. It was newly founded, newly funded. They already had customers, they already had vendors, but they had nobody to manage projects. So I jumped at that opportunity, and part of it was to stay in Pasadena. We loved it there, but part of it was to learn something new and, again, find out what that opportunity could bring. So I did that for about three and a half years, got that company off the ground. You kind of already listed some of the things that we did. But then in 2021, family called, and we decided to move to the Midwest, so back to Ohio. And then that's where, you know, kind of just did a network-heavy job search, so really trying to maximize the use of my network had lunch with the CEO of the company that I work for now. And a few days after that, I had an interview. And then a few days after that, I had an offer. And so made a really nice soft landing as my family moved back here to Ohio. Yet this company, Fabrisonic, I have the opportunity to work with an incredible set of engineers. I get to lead the company's prototyping and production operations and really just focus on, I think the CEO's job really is just simply getting things done. So getting things done using our, our ultrasonic additive manufacturing technology. And I get to leverage all of the things that you've already listed, you know, 20 years as a Marine Corps officer, the startup experience, skills I developed while doing a PhD program. It's really a great opportunity to kind of provide some synergy for all the various and diverse background experiences that I have. So that's what's basically gotten me to where I am today. Well, nice set of collective experiences already. In preparation for this conversation, you mentioned, I think what you called five key principles of how to create a culture of initiative within a small business. I'd love to hear you first, maybe just list what they are, and then I'll have you come back around and maybe unpack each one in a little more detail. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So the five principles that I kind of mentioned to you were lead by intent, do by delegating, empower decision-making, maximize collaboration. And then the fifth one is processes are performance, particularly for a small business. And again, happy to expound on each one of those. Yeah, that would be great. Why don't you start up at the top with number one, lead by intent. Tell us what that's all about. Yeah, I think before I do that, I think it's helpful to articulate a few assumptions and realities that I have about the small business world, really business in general. And, and these, these assumptions undergird those five principles. First, small businesses, which make up the vast majority of firms in the U.S., face incredible challenges. It's difficult not just to thrive, but it's, it's incredibly difficult to survive. 
we all know the statistics about how many small businesses and startups fail over their lifetime. But to give some context to that, companies that are 20 or fewer employees make up 90% of all U.S. firms in the U.S. So to be successful or even thrive, a small business has to do a couple of things. One, they need to punch above their weight, which means getting more out of their employees than one would expect, or the sum has to be greater than the parts for a small business. Second, small businesses have to unleash the creativity and ingenuity of every team member. When you're 20 or, or less employees, you can't have any anchors. Everyone has to row and everyone has to row hard. And that means taking on a lot more hats usually than a normal large business. Some businesses, and I know people that have worked for JPL or other large aerospace companies, right? And you, you can easily get pigeonholed. You do FEA, finite element analysis, and that's all you do. But at a small business, that can't be the case. You're doing five or six different things. In a small business, there's no managers. There's not, there are not many managers in a small business. And in fact, regardless of the size, everyone has to be a doer. I also, another assumption that I value or, or believe is that people want to be challenged and to accomplish things and show what they're capable of. And then lastly, assuming you've hired the right people, everyone on the team wants the company to succeed. And so those assumptions, I think, like I said, undergird these principles that I've mentioned. The first principle, as I mentioned, is leaders need to lead by intent. What do I mean by that? You know, to explain this, what I'm going to say here in a large part comes from my Marine Corps experiences. And in particular, come from a small book that's a doctrinal foundational book for the Marine Corps called War Fighting. It's a very small book. I actually recommend any business leader read that book. That's a Marine Corps philosophy on how to fight and how to lead, but it's applicable across, really across any sector of business because it's really kind of a mindset and a philosophy of how to adapt to change and succeed in a kind of chaotic and complex environment. And that defines today's business world. But as I mentioned, I think the goal of any organization is to succeed. However, that's defined by each business, right? But leaders can't do everything, they can't be everywhere, and they can't supervise everyone. So businesses need to generate the tempo to be successful and create a culture of, of adaptation to, again, thrive and succeed in, in situations of uncertainty and the challenges and the complexity of today's contemporary economy. And decision-making and action is central to the company's success, but has to be decentralized. And it's decentralized through providing a purpose or the intent for what uh, a CEO, a manager, whoever it is, wants their team members or employees to do. Direction has two parts, a task and a purpose. The task is the what. What do you want somebody to achieve? But even more important than that is the purpose. Why do you want them to do X, Y, or Z? Right? Sometimes it's pretty clear, right? Customers ordered part X, you make part X. But sometimes there's a larger purpose behind that, right? We're making part X in order to create more business opportunities within that company to demonstrate a technology that we've developed to go from small production to mass production. There's usually a larger intent or purpose behind just de delivering this one product to this one customer. And so when I say lead by intent, what I mean is that leaders have to focus on the why, the purpose. What is the overarching thing that a company, the team, et cetera, needs to achieve. And I guess I would say this, how many times are employees, you know, do employees ask, why am I doing this? 
Or how many times in an organization does a manager say, I don't know, boss just wants it done, right? But that hinders the ability for team members and employees to make good decisions, right? Then it just becomes getting the task done, right? Vice the larger purpose behind that task. And sometimes situations change, right? Like on the battlefield, you might give a, a platoon or a company or whoever a mission, a task to accomplish. But if the situation changes or the enemy's not where they're supposed to be, the larger purpose drives their decision-making about what to do next. They don't have to look back and ask, okay, where do you want me to go? They can make decisions in that complex and chaotic environment to achieve that larger purpose. And the same thing happens in the business world, right? We might be making a part and the feeds and speeds just don't cut it or a machine can't achieve the feeds and speeds necessary or a particular geometry is not possible. Or you can name a hundred different situations where an employee comes across a challenge and they have to decide what to do next. If they know that larger purpose, they can make a better decision, a decision to achieve the company's larger end state for that product. But if they don't have that larger purpose, what are they going to do? They're going to turn around and ask the manager, what do you want me to do? And that's going to slow collective decision-making down, and that's going to slow success down for a company. That's what I mean about leading by intent. And in fact, I would argue that in most cases, in many cases, when a task isn't accomplished effectively, when a leader's expectations aren't met, it's because there wasn't a larger purpose given. And so the team member or employee didn't really understand why they were doing something. And I would also say that the number one job of any leader from CEO on down is to provide clear guidance. You have to provide that overarching intent. Great response there, Jason. I mean, you, you packed a, a ton into that first point about leading by intent. And I sat here, for those who are just listening on audio, I'm just sitting here nodding the whole time because it's the same stuff I see in my world. And we've grown as a business from just the two of us, my business partner and I, 17 years ago to a, a team of 35. And like that breaking point around 20 people or so, and there's another layer of, of leadership in there, the vision for the company, just helping people understand why we are doing this or this or this a certain way just becomes that much more important. I think a lot of the times when I've seen morale issues at our company or sort of a feeling of chaos, a lot of it has stemmed from like, where are we going here? What are we doing? Why are we doing this thing? So I can relate so much to everything you packed in there. Really good stuff. Let's go to number two. We're talking about five key principles for how to create a culture of initiative in a small business. One was lead by intent. Tell us what number two is, Jason. Number two is, is do by delegating. And what I mean by that is that there's only so many hours in a week. And a CEO, an executive, a manager, you name it, are working a large majority of those available hours, right? I mean, they're working as much as they possibly can and probably not die, right, through exhaustion. But the question is, how many tasks does a leader do, and again, a CEO, manager, et cetera, that can be delegated to other people to maximize their time to accomplish higher level things? As an individual, I can only accomplish one thing at a time. As a leader, I can accomplish more than that through delegation. There's an issue here, right? People don't often delegate. And I want to kind of address reasons why they don't. One of those reasons is fear. And I think fear is based on one of two things. Fear that somebody else might do it better. And that by a team member or an employee doing something better than they would do it, that somehow that's going to undermine their authority or their responsibility or whatever, which isn't true, right? Our job as leaders is to empower and enable others to do things that they wouldn't normally do, to help them grow, 
But ultimately, right, as we develop our team members, the company is going to improve, the company is going to succeed. Another aspect of fear is what if I delegate something to somebody and they fail at it, right? So fear is often driving lack of delegation. The biggest one I think though is lack of trust. Managers don't delegate because they don't trust their team members are capable or competent to carry out a task. But trust is built through experience and trust has to be, is built over time. And so if we don't delegate, we're never going to develop the trust that we need to give people both small and larger tasks and ultimately, again, help them develop and become better employees, better team members, et cetera. Another thing that I think hinders delegation is the belief that only I can do this, right? Only I am capable of accomplishing this thing, which again, at that moment might be, might be true. Maybe you're the best at accomplishing that task. But if you don't give people the ability or the opportunity to grow at a particular task, then you're going to continue to remain the only one that is capable of doing that. And single points of failure are never a good thing in, in any business, small or large. Another reason is just habit. I've always done this, right? So why would I hand this over to somebody else? Another reason is just the easy button, right? It's easy for leaders and managers who are good at something to just do it, right? This common, this myth, if I want something done right, do it yourself. If you want something done right, do it yourself. But that, again, that doesn't allow subordinates to develop. It doesn't allow them to grow. And it doesn't increase the institutional capability in an organization. And I would respond to that, that phrase, right? If you want something done right, do it yourself. By if you want to always be the one that has to do it, continue to do it yourself. And I would say the last reason for why people don't delegate is an inability to clearly articulate the why, right? Or the task. And so that's, that's a fault of the manager not practicing communicating the task and purpose, going back to the first point. And so those are reasons why people don't delegate. And I'll talk a little bit about why they should, right? Leaders have to maximize what they're doing. And they can only do this by working through their teams. And again, it involves trust and it involves providing clear intent. When a leader, I stole this from the book that General James Mattis published a couple of years ago, Call Sign Chaos. But he said that whenever he entered a new situation, got a new job, took over a new position, his question was always, what is the problem that I'm here to solve? The other side of the coin, though, are what are the problems that my team members can solve? And if it's a problem that they can solve, then the responsibility and the authority to solve those problems should be pushed down to the lowest possible level. That's how a team, that's how an organization creates a tempo by pushing decision-making and pushing authority down to the lowest possible level. They usually have the most insight into the problem, at least on the ground level. And so if you can push those things down, you can push those tasks, you can delegate those things down, the company, the organization, the business is only going to succeed even further. Delegation also enables growth, right? It enables growth for both the leader being able to clearly articulate what it is you want to accomplish and the why, but it obviously it enables growth for those that we lead as well, getting them opportunity and experience. I read once that good decisions come out of experience and experience often comes from bad decisions, right? So, but we have to have the opportunity to fail to create that experience, which enables the wisdom to make good decisions in the future. And if we're always doing the things that we know we could push down or should be pushing down, in the organizations 
is not going to grow in understanding, experience, wisdom, and ultimately performance. Yeah, Jason, I completely agree with everything you said there. I think that was spot on in in so many ways. I got nothing to add. So let's let's go to number three, which is so we're, so we're talking about five key principles for how to create a culture of initiative within a small business. Number three is empowering decision making. Talk to us about that one. This one falls in line again with the previous two. In order for team members to work within the business intent, in order for them to effectively accomplish things that we've delegated to them, they have to be able to make decisions. Too often, decision-making authority is held at the executive or managerial level. I can't count the number of times I've talked to somebody from another company about an issue that needs a decision, and the person responds with, I need to get back to you. I need to talk to my manager. Well, if that's the case, I should have been talking to the manager the entire time. You're just an unnecessary roadblock or a hindrance to actually getting something done. Intent, so articulating intent, delegating authority leads to empowering decision-making. And I'm not arguing about unrestricted authority to make decisions. Right? There's going to be a select few that can make the same decisions as the CEO. And so there's certainly going to be a, a gradation or a spectrum of, of the kinds of decisions that someone can make depending on their role or experience, et cetera. But we have to, as leaders, give them a framework from which to make decisions within or a left and right limit. When we talk about business development, right, there are various models for business development, BANT, CHAMP, things like that. One of those key things is authority, right? Who has the authority to make a decision? So business developers know this. They know that when they go into an organization, if they're going to sell a product, they're going to get a business deal done. They know that they need to talk to the person who has the authority to make those decisions. If we're going to send somebody out to accomplish something for us as a leader, we're going to delegate tasks. We have to then also delegate the authority to make decisions to accomplish that larger intent. And so as employees grow in experience and responsibility, that the extent of that decision-making authority grows. But if we never give it to them, they're never going to develop again, the wisdom and experience to make good decisions for the company or for the business down the line. And again, empowering decision-making, as I mentioned early, one of my assumptions, it's about the tempo of a business, right? The business thrives, the business grows when it's able to make decisions rapidly over time and out-decide and out-act its competitors or the market. And so empowering decision-making increases business decision tempo, which is key to a business thriving. Empowering decision-making also requires trust and increases trust within an organization. As I empower people to make decisions and they make good decisions, one, they're empowered themselves. They become more confident in the kind of decisions they can make. But I then develop trust with them. They develop trust with me. And so the types of decisions that I continue to allow them to make, that grows. And so ultimately, we have a team of people that can collectively and individually make decisions on behalf of the, the success of the business. Now, team members at times will make the wrong decision. It's just going to happen, right? And so we as leaders, managers, et cetera, have to just simply live with it. Very few decisions are unrepeatable. Very few decisions are, are permanent. And so we have to understand that, yeah, decisions can, uh, might be made. It might be, not be, have been the best decision, but we can always adapt and change to address those decisions. And so that's where teaching coaching, correcting, mentorship come in, but how else are they going to learn and develop? Mm -hmm. We have to empower, empower decision-making. And the last thing I would say is that, again, we can delegate authority, but we can't delegate responsibility. 
And so I can delegate the ability to make decisions, but ultimately the buck stops with me when I do set and I do that. And so it's not a blame game. It's an acceptance of responsibility game. And often what happens is we don't delegate the authority to make decisions, but we hold other people responsible when ultimately the responsibility was, was ours. And so again, in terms of these principles, you got to leave my intent. You got to give a clear intent. You have to delegate the task and the authority to carry out things on behalf of the business. And then third, you have to empower those that we're leading with the ability to make decisions on behalf of the business. And these three things, again, are, are interrelated and help businesses thrive. Okay, let's take a quick break here. I want to let a couple of our strategists at Gorilla76 tell you about something pretty cool that we're doing right now for marketing folks in the manufacturing sector. Peyton and Brendan, take it away. So I'm Peyton Warren. And I'm Brendan Forrest. Twice a month, we host a live event called Industrial Marketing Live. Right now, we have a group of 50 plus industrial marketers from a variety of manufacturing organizations that meet up digitally to learn, ask questions, network, and get smarter. Every session has a designated topic. And one of our team members at Gorilla76 opens up by teaching for the first half hour or so. Topics have included how to do a better manufacturing webinar, getting started with paid social on LinkedIn, how to optimize your website for conversions, creating amazing video content, and so much more. After we break it down, we open it up to Q&A so we can help you apply all of this in your own businesses. This is pure value, no cost, no strings attached, no product or service pitches, just a 100% unadulterated learning experience. And on top of these live sessions, we've also opened up a Slack channel where attendees bounce ideas off each other and learn together between sessions. We're building a true community of manufacturing marketing professionals here. So if you or someone at your company has the word marketing in his or her job title, please consider telling them about it. They can visit industrialmarketinglive.com to register. We'd love to see you there. Yeah, great stuff there. I, you know, as I sort of reflect on the last two points that you hit under the last two of the five principles we're talking about today, do by delegating and empower decision making, is something that I've observed. You know, I've been co-leading my company for almost 18 years and the younger my employees become, the more I see this need for ownership. Like I see people driven, the younger millennials, the Gen Zers, a lot of them care more about autonomy to do their job, how they're going to use those things to take the next step in their career. They don't want to be told what to do or just follow a process. They want to understand the purpose, which I guess comes back to leading by intent, right? Being clear about, about the purpose and why we're doing something, both in terms of vision of the company and also just within the, the daily work that's happening. And so I just, I think that these things are only becoming more and more important just based on the mindset and the way that younger generations are thinking. And I think that's so important right now for the manufacturing sector to, to hear because that's where we're struggling to find people in manufacturing, right? Is bringing that younger generation in and we need to understand what they actually care about. So a lot of what you're saying is is resonating a lot with me right now. And manufacturing is, is a national security issue. As a veteran and somebody who continues to serve, like we are falling behind and we have lost a lot of our ability to manufacture and do things. And we have to draw skilled people into the manufacturing sector. And you just mentioned it or kind of implied it, but people want three things. They want meaning in what they do. They want purpose in what they do. And they want to know that what they do has impact. Mm -hmm. And so when we lead by intent, when we delegate, when we empower, we give people those things, right? We give them meaning. 
that's kind of the personal sense of fulfillment. We give them purpose, meaning they're achieving something greater than themselves. And then we give them the ability to make an impact by what they do and the decisions that they make. They make decisions and they can see the tangible benefit that it has to the company's bottom line or the company's success or selling more product or making something. And so all of those are kind of tied into what I'm talking about. Yeah, love that. So Jason, we're talking about five key principles for how to create a culture of initiative within a small business. We've touched on three already. Number four is maximize collaboration. Tell us what that one's all about. Maximizing collaboration is about crafting a highly functional, highly communicative team. In today's increasing complex environment, teams have to take advantage of the collective wisdom of a team. One of my favorite, I don't know if you've seen these, but they're demotivational posters. They're parody, right? So you see the motivational ones, but there's all this, also the, this whole line of demotivational ones. And one of them says, you know, something like collaboration or crowds. None of us is as dumb as all of us, right? And so kind of a, a pessimistic view of the intelligence of a group. But I've seen it that actually, and what we try to take advantage of here at Fabrisonic is the collective wisdom of the team. Our experiences are different. The types of projects we've worked on are different. Our view of a particular project is different. And so what we try to do is we try to take advantage of the knowledge, the experience, and the expertise of the group, even though a particular engineer is the lead on that thing. And that, that engineer has the authority and the responsibility for carrying out that project. And so we're very, very collaborative here at Fabrisonic. In fact, it just happened the other day. One of the engineers was having a, a challenge on a particular project. So we have these ultrasonic additive manufacturing machines. I walked up, hey, what's going on? Engineer articulated the problem. And I just very quickly called the other engineers and said, hey, let's get in the machine and take a look. All right, what do you think? What do you think? What do you think? All right, here's the collective consensus on this. All right, here's our priority. Here's what we need to get it done. Here's what we just articulated as the steps we need to accomplish this thing. All right, let's go and get it done. But it only happened through taking in that collective wisdom from the team and the collective experience, because not everybody's going to have, no one person's going to have all of the experience and, and wisdom and knowledge to accomplish everything. It's just not possible. And collaboration allows for cross-communication within an organization, cross-pollination of ideas. And it reduces myopic decisions and often stoking, right, is a common term, where a person or a team or a subdivision within an organization just makes decisions based on their small sliver of the pie. Part of that is, again, they don't understand the broader intent of the organization or the purpose. But another reason for that is lack of communication and lack of cross-coordination. And so one of the ways that we try to enact this here are regular weekly meetings where everybody's involved and we'll talk about projects. Okay, what's the purpose of this project? What's the plan for this project? And we allow everybody's kind of collective wisdom to shoot holes in things, right? To throw, throw tomatoes, as we like to say, but also to help people think through ways of doing something that maybe they hadn't thought through on their own. And so, yeah, organizations make decisions just like individuals, but the key to organizational decision-making is communication. And so we have to maximize that collaboration within teams. Yeah, that's that's really great. I just did an episode, one of my favorites I've done recently with Adam Keating, who is CEO or president, co-founder of CoLab Software. CoLab, I assume, stems from the word collaboration, but they do engineering collaboration software for new product development, design reviews, et cetera. And so we did a, a whole 
we had a whole conversation about this problem that is only getting worse today where you you think that you know product development would be getting easier with just technology but it's there's so much disjointed communication and emailing powerpoint decks back and forth and people taking 3 hours to just find a file so they're attacking this problem from a collaborative software standpoint but it's a real thing and i i see it from a variety of angles and i see why you made this one your your five points yeah and even more today right with our hybrid and, and often sometimes fully remote organizations yeah yeah totally i mean yeah there was a time where your whole team was in one place and geez it took three years of pandemic to people's hiring philosophies have changed you got people working for your company all over the country or the world and it's just created a whole new set of challenges i think for collaboration but there's also a lot of really great solutions emerging that if people can understand them and take advantage of them can really give you a leg up right now and into the future yeah absolutely very good all right, so we've talked about the first four of five key principles for how to create a culture of initiative within a small business. Number five, I have written down processes are performance. Tell us what that one's all about. Yeah, processes are performance, and it's probably going to seem like a shift in what I've talked about already, right? I've talked about leading by intent and going out and getting things done based on a purpose that's been given and having authority and responsibility to make decisions and get things done. And now I talk about processes. And I'll be honest, we are an ISO 9001 company, and we take a lot of pride in being that. And here's what my assumption, here's my undergirding, you know, my philosophy behind this statement. My focus is on where we put our cognitive energy individually and collectively. Whenever we free up cognitive bandwidth or time so that we can focus our energy and effort on critical things, we have to do so. And processes or standard operating procedures and things like that, what they do is they allow us to make decisions beforehand so that we can free up our cognitive bandwidth to make critical now. We've already said, hey, here's how we're going to standardize this process. And again, that doesn't mean those processes can't change. But it says, you know, as an organization, we're going to do this one thing the same way so that we don't have to recreate the wheel every time we encounter the situation. We do that in the Marine Corps through, I mean, standard operating procedures are the key, are one of the keys to increasing operational tempo on the battlefield. And they're one of the keys for increasing business tempo in the private sector. They standardize how certain things happen and the outcomes that we should expect. And again, they free up bandwidth and enable decision-making as an organization and as individuals. And they also ensure that organizational knowledge isn't stuck with one person, the one guy who knows how to get things done. When we can put something in a process that leads to generational experience and generational knowledge in an organization. And like I said, there, there are ways that we can make a decision beforehand so that when we encounter that situation, we already know what to do. Gary Klein talks about processes and procedures in his book, Streetlights and Shadows, which I would recommend anybody read. And there are situations in which they're critical, situations in which you need to be more flexible, right? But for novice organizations or organizations that don't build 30 years of expertise on something, processes are critical. And I would say that any small business has to rely on processes to get some things done. And again, we we have to adapt processes for changing situations, but we shouldn't have to change a process for every single situation. If the process has to change every time we, we encounter something, it's not a good process. And so 
in a small business, they can save time, hand off things easily and effectively to other people. Everyone knows what to do, but processes only work if everyone knows the process. So they can't be too rigid, but they also can't be too broad. Processes need to be specific enough to be useful, but general enough to allow for the uniqueness of individual situations and circumstances. And so as it relates to my other four points, processes provide an overarching framework often for us to get things done without having to rebuild that framework every single time we do something. And obviously from an industry standard, right, some industries require processes to ensure that the thing is done the same and the product that you give is going to be the same. So there's a lot of regulations and legal reasons and things like that. But I think we often focus on those things and say, oh, the process is getting in the way where the process can really enable performance for a small organization. Yeah, I love the way you said that. And I wish it's one of those things I would have figured out five or 10 years earlier than I had as I built my business, because I think the way you set that up was really good. It, it almost feels processes or performance almost feels at odds with on paper and writing with the first four points you talked about. But I like the way you described you need a framework to work within or guardrails or people need a box to work within, frankly, in at least a lot of situations. And what I've dealt with in my career or things become chaos. Right. And so you learn from you, you identify patterns from your work. You start to build that framework. And now all of a sudden, everybody knows what their job is and what they need to do. And as you said, it frees up their brain power to you. You're always going to have decisions you need to make situational decisions, strategic decisions that happen within the framework. But like for us as a marketing agency, we have a very clear process we go through with every client from discovery through building a strategy, through getting the messaging right, through making content, through how we're going to get in front of people. And there are frameworks and sub frameworks for all of that. But there is a lot of space for our strategy people, our writers, our client service people to think and adapt to each client's need. You take the framework and you apply it as opposed to trying to figure everything out from scratch, which, as I said earlier, just kind of becomes chaos, right? Yeah, exactly. And you know, I, don't get me wrong. I value thinking outside of the box. Yeah, but I think yeah. often people try to do that without knowing what the box is in the first place. Yes, yes, there you go. Sometimes, you know, I mean, I found this in Marine Corps experiences. I found this in the civilian sector and in the academic world. Sometimes the answer actually is in the box. Sometimes it is, right? We sometimes want to jump to the, extremely creative idea or try to be ingenious in solving something when kind of the process has really been there the whole time to solve the problem for us. And we could have focused on more critical issues. Wow, Jason, there was so much you packed into this. I mean, such a great conversation. I love the framework you've created for talking about these things that matter so much in leadership and especially in today's manufacturing world. So I appreciate you sharing all that with us and, and going in, in such depth with each of those five points. I want to just kind of open it up to you before we put a wrap on this and ask, you know, is there anything I didn't ask you about that you'd like to share with our manufacturing leader audience? Yeah, at first, thank you for the opportunity. It's been fantastic to just talk through and articulate some of these things. You know, one thing that I'll, I'll leave you with is something that somebody once said to me, again, in, in the Marine Corps. And they, they said, treat each Marine as if that Marine will be the one that saves your life. And I thought about that for a long time. And then once I entered the private sector, it hit me that that's a metaphor for leadership. It's a metaphor for leadership. And it kind of rocked my world once I made the connection. It's something I'd never thought of before, and I think it has profound implications. 
first, it views people as inherently valuable, right? And maybe to back up, the way that I flipped the metaphor or used the metaphor in, in my context is treating every employee as if that employee will be the one that saves your business. And if we can operate with that mindset, I think we'll be much more powerful and effective as leaders. Again, it views people as inherently valuable. It looks at people as critical to the success of the organization. In combat, trust is the supreme currency. But I would say also in small businesses, trust is also the supreme currency. We have to trust that people can get things done and they have to trust us with their livelihoods as uh, executives. In the business world, we have to see people as critical to the success of a business. You never know who might have the key idea to solve a problem. And I would say in a business, everyone is a salesperson. Everything is sales, whether it's the business development guy and the sales guy actually selling the product and generating leads to the person packaging and shipping the part to a customer. Everything along the line of that spectrum is sales. And so if an employee puts their into making the product and packaging the product and shipping the product and speaking to a customer, whatever, your business will have a better chance of success. But it requires treating every employee with the same level of respect and valuing their contribution to the organization. Yeah, their role might be different. Their role might be different. Their role might be putting widgets together to make something. Their role might be in shipping, receiving. Their role might be in accounting, whatever the case is. Right. But we have to treat them with the same level of respect and value their contribution. And we have to invest in them. My philosophy is when an employee leaves an organization, they should leave better personally and professionally than when they leave. And there's this kind of hypothetical. I've seen this meme out there. Right. It's hypothetical conversation between a CFO and a CEO. You know, the CFO goes, well, what if we invest in them? What if we you know, train them, put money in, into them, develop them and they leave? And the CEO goes, well, what if we don't and they stay? And so we have to value the employee's input. We have to value their contribution. And we have to have the philosophy of the best idea can come from anywhere. When people are invested in, they will return that investment and invest back into the business. Yeah, so I would say that's kind of, you know, so as we were talking, something that came to mind that I thought was kind of a parallel idea to the five principles that I've talked about earlier, but I think also undergirds how I see leadership within a business. Yeah, I'm right there with you. I, really well said. And I think it ties perfectly into really everything we talked about today. So great way to put a wrap on it. Jason, great conversation. We could probably keep going all day. I had all kinds of other things I wanted to ask you, but geez, we did a 45, 50 minute episode there and probably just means we need to do a round two at some point. I really enjoyed talking to you today. So could you tell us a little bit about how our audience can learn more about what Fabrisonic's doing and get in touch with you if they'd be interested? Sure. So you can visit our website at, at www.fabrisonic.com. You can absolutely come visit us in Lewis Center, Ohio, just north of Columbus. We have a 25,000 square foot manufacturing facility. Again, we do R&D, we do prototypes, we do small and large scale production, we sell machines. And we'll ask, actually be at a few trade shows. And so you can also find us on LinkedIn, visit our company website. We've been putting out these what we call ultrasonic minutes. And so there are CEO talking just a one minute introduction to aspects of our pro our process and technology. It's a great way for people just to get a baseline knowledge of what ultrasonic additive manufacturing is. Fantastic. Well, Jason, once again, thanks for doing this today. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure.
As for the rest of you, I hope to catch you on the next episode of The Manufacturing Executive. You've been listening to The Manufacturing Executive Podcast. To ensure that you never miss an episode, subscribe to the show in your favorite podcast player. If you'd like to learn more about industrial marketing and sales strategy, you'll find an ever-expanding collection of articles, videos, guides, and tools specifically for B2B manufacturers at gorilla76.com learn. Thank you so much for listening. Until next time.